If you've been with us, you know that we just finished a series in Romans 8. So we are actually starting a new series tonight. Um, But something happened. Normally, I get the series titles and the uh, series ideas to a guy named Zach Simpson at our church. And he usually makes like the really nice uh, graphics for us. Um, This time, I did not get this to him. So it was up to me to name um, the series. So I decided to name it 2 Peter 1, 3 through 15. And then I thought, man, we really need a nice, like, graphic to really show off the creative gifts of this ministry. Um, so that's what I came up with. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 15 tonight. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, get there tonight. I, uh, you know, we, that's why we have uh, all kinds of gifts in the church, because this is what I come up with for a title. Um, we are, we are going to spend the next three weeks, so tonight and two weeks, in this passage, we're not going to do the whole book of Second Peter. Uh, we are just going to nail down what the Lord would have for us in that. And listen, that'll take us up to the very last week of Campus Collective for season two. So we will finish out this passage. Then we will take a moment to talk about vision and mission, what the Lord has called us to um, just for the future. And then it's finals week. And then a lot of you all go home. So it's kind of crazy that we are, we are winding down here. Um, but before we actually go into the passage, I want to say a few things about why you need this passage, okay? You, you need, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is why you need 2 Peter 1, 3 through 15. A few reasons. Here, here's, here's uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, okay? Six reasons why you need this. First reason, you need this passage to understand the depth of God's promises and how they affect you. You need this. Um, too often, promises of God become, become cliché in our lives. You need this to show us how these will drive down deep into your soul so that you might live out these promises. Second reason you need this passage, to get direction on your spiritual growth in Christ. So if you are someone who's like stuck or you feel like you are not moving forward at all in Christ, there's no spiritual fervor in your life, this passage will give you direction on what that looks like to grow in him. Also, to see how to be fruitful and effective for Christ. I'm assuming that if you're a Christian in this room, that that's something that you want. I pray it's something that you want. That whenever you are praying to the Lord in the mornings and you are living out your life, you are thinking, how can I be fruitful? How can I be effective for his mission? Um, Another reason, this passage is really helpful, to show you why you aren't growing in Christ. So if you need like a diagnostic and you're just like, man, this whole semester, I feel like it's been a waste. I am not growing at all. There's no um, increase in in just love for Jesus or love for lost people. This passage is going to show you why you are not growing. Um, Also, to see how to confirm your calling, your calling in Christ, what he has called you to. And lastly, to be reminded of truth that can establish you. So this is huge implications for us as we finish out the year. Because you need to know something. When you go back to summer and your whole routine changes, one of the first things to go is all of your spiritual disciplines. I don't know if you all got a taste of that at spring break. Um, You kind of have like this routine going. You're loving Jesus. You're pressing into him. And then spring break happens and it's like all spiritual maturity was just thrown out. There's no love. There's no zeal for him. And that gets amplified over the summer. So this series is aimed at you to help you, give you the tools so that you might not waste your summer And you're not just every year in this same cycle of 
Summer kind of dulls you out for the mission of God, and it takes some big fall retreat event to get you back excited about the gospel, and then you're just in this constant state of of really excited, really not, really excited, really not. This can help you anchor you in so that you might be able to combat that in your life. So in order to see the beauty of all of these realities that are in this passage, what we're going to do every week is we're going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to focus on three different aspects, three different parts of it, so that we can see the specifics of what it's trying to show us. So this series will be a lot more teaching as opposed to preaching, because I need you to nail this into your brain so that you might be able to grow. Um, one, one quick thing about context, this is an epistle, so Peter wrote this, he's an apostle, which means that everything that we read is grounded in the fact that Jesus has already died and is alive right now, and that his death has purchased forgiveness of sins and all the ways that we fail to live up to this, but it's also given you life in Jesus so that you might live these things out. And one more note before we read this passage. I will say, this passage right here is probably my most read, most meditated on passage in the entire Bible. I've probably gone back to this more than any other passage to get help um, in my time of need to look more like Jesus. So, all that being said, hope you got your Bibles out. It'll be on the screens if you didn't bring one. Let's read this together. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort, every effort. To supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray as we focus in on these verse 3 and verse 4 tonight, that you would do what only you can, that we would... Lord, please forbid us from leaving here and thinking that was some motivational speech. I pray that we would leave here in awe of the gospel and that the gospel would change us to look more like Jesus so that we might be fruitful, that we might be effective in our ministry and our personal lives, and that ultimately you would get more glory from this ministry and in our lives, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there's three hinge points in this entire passage that sets up our context. Here's the first one, verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then there's a list, you see that, of attributes that we are supposed to grow into. 
Um, this shows that there is something about this passage that is aimed at making us more mature in our faith and in our walk with Christ. I mean, look at these qualities. Don't, don't you want that? Like, when you see these things that it is listing, this is something that if you had the Spirit of God in you, you should be stirred, inspired, longing to see these things in your life. Think about it. Can you imagine if your life, when people look at a tape of your life, the things that they point out is that you will have a life of virtue, a life of knowledge, of self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are incredible things that if our lives could be marked by them, I know that we would be more effective in our mission. So the first anchor point for us to know is that there is effort in growing in your faith. There is effort. Second hinge point comes in verse 8. says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So, there's a theological word that you're going to want to know. Um, it's sanctification. Um, what that means is just the process where God makes you look more like Jesus. That's sanctification. So, we, um, the power of sanctification in our life, in your life, has a direct, listen, do not miss this, a direct connection with your effectiveness as a follower of Christ on mission. I'm not making that up. That's not us trying to manipulate ourselves into acting moral. You are seeing here that if these qualities are yours and increasing, meaning becoming more like Jesus in your life, when no one else is watching, not the show you put on, at the ministry stuff, in your life, if these things are increasing, look what they do. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your battle with sanctification and personal holiness has an effect on your effectiveness in the mission of Christ. Listen, personal holiness is so important. It's not the means of your salvation. You don't obey yourself to where Jesus is like, all right, you've been personally holy enough. I think I'll let you in the kingdom. We know that. He saves us and in, his, in his changing of us to make you more effective. He is making you more like Jesus. It's not the means of your salvation, but it is a fruit of your salvation. So what does that mean for us? We've got to get more desperate. We have to. Like, I hope that we can all at least leave here thinking, we look nothing like that list. Am, am I the only one? Like, you, you think about these things that are, that are or my qualities. I don't even know if I can say that I have half of those qualities in my life with Jesus. Definitely not increasing. Right? Is anybody like more close to Jesus in the past week? I hope for some of you, you are. But for me, I have had one of those weeks where I don't know if I could tell you any of these things marked my life. Not increasing. So was I effective and was I fruitful? I don't know, but I know I need help. So when you see this, don't be crushed in guilt and self-condemnation, but be convicted to know that you need God. You need Him. And listen, you really can take yourself out of effective ministry by you deciding to not hate your own sin. Man, that's not popular to do. You realize you don't grow ministries by talking about that, right? But I love you enough to tell you. Like you realize, if I hated you, I would tell you that it doesn't actually matter. But it does. These are yours and increasing. Third hinge point. It's in verse 12. It says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Here's a hinge point for you. We need reminded of gospel truth. 
Um, Our gospel forgetfulness or our gospel boredom is a major reason why we don't take each day and leverage it for the kingdom of God. Like, I am devastated and humiliated by how bored I am with the fact that Jesus is alive. Like, if we truly grasp the things the Bible says about Jesus and about us because of him, there's no way we wake up and don't leverage it all. Every thought, every interaction, every conversation, everything we do so that people might know him. And even right now, like, right right now as we're preaching, some of you are checked out. It's so easy to just finally show up to the next thing and sit down when the word of God is here to change us. And we need reminded. This passage understands that and will be aimed at serving us as a reminder to keep growing in the gospel so that more people might believe it through our lives on mission. So these three hinge points will kind of guide every sermon of this little miniature series. But it's especially important to see them before we look at the first two verses because that's really going to, these first two verses kind of anchor in the whole thing. If you don't get these, and the, the next uh, couple sermons aren't going to make as much sense. So let's lean in, read three and four again, and we're going to break this down word by word, phrase by phrase, so that we might leave here in awe of Jesus. Okay? Let's look at verse three. His divine power has granted to us all, please do not let these be words. Think about these things. Has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from corruption that is in the world. Because of sinful desire. Those first three words there. His divine power. Please notice, it's talking about the power of God. Like, the power of the God of the universe. And honestly, I I, I tried to meditate on this, and I don't know if it's just my own personal intellectual limitations. My note here literally says, this concept is actually too difficult for me to explain. So that's your analysis of his divine power. Um, There's just more here than we can even contain. Um, you think about it, it's a, uh, the source of God's power being God himself. It's the God who created everything. It's the God who sustains everything. The God who is controlling history. The God who is literally giving you breath right now. All of that at the same time, and it's not even hard. But you think about that. He's holding Jupiter and giving you breath at the same time. That type of power, that's the source. It's God himself. Now, what's the display of this power? Um, the ultimate display of God's powers happened in the cross and resurrection. You think about it. He reversed death. He reversed death so that we might have salvation. Do you realize how much power is displayed in reversing death for the salvation of people who will believe in him? Um, just, just to show you multiple angles of this display of ultimate power, um, uh, it's a, a pop quiz. Who, who raised Jesus from the dead? Do you know? God? Someone would say maybe the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead? Did you know that the Bible actually gives us an entire Trinitarian shape of the resurrection of Jesus? Which makes Trev the winner? God. Galatians 1.1 shows us the Father raised Jesus. John 10.18, Jesus raised 
Jesus. That's that epic verse where Jesus is like, yeah, they think they're going to kill me. This is my paraphrase. Um, but I'm actually going to lay my life down. Do you know why I do that? Because I'm going to pick it back up again. Power. Laid his own life down and thought, the reason I'm doing this is so that I can pick it back up. And in 1 Peter 3.18, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus. So much power in that display. Now, the application of this power is that the source is God himself. The ultimate display is in the gospel, Jesus dying and rising again. The application of that power is that he keeps us saved. You realize that if it, wasn't, it, was, if it was up to you, you wouldn't be a Christian anymore? You realize that? Like, you need God to keep you, and it's by that resurrection power that he keeps you, that he reveals truth to you in that power. He convicts you of sin in that power. He opens our hearts to the promises that we need to be sustained in our fight of faith in that power. And here's the humiliating part. So much of my life is lived without actually needing this power. Now, needing is in air quotes, because it's Obviously, I need the power of God. But how much of my life is just kind of mundane, normal human existence with like Christianity sprinkled on top? It's devastating to me. How much of your life do you live like you actually rely solely 100% on the power of God? That power of God is not just some theoretical concept. It's actually aimed at something. Look at the next phrase has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice, we are passive in this exchange. We can't muster up the things that we need for life and godliness. This means that we can't create sustaining meaning, sustaining purpose, or identities for our own lives. That is weight that we cannot handle. This also means that we can't behave our way into godliness. These things only come from divine Power, not human willpower, not human self-esteem. You need help from outside of you for life and for godliness. We all need the gospel. Non-Christians in here, you need the gospel. Christians in here, you need the gospel. The gospel is good news for both lost and found, all aimed at making us lean more into who Jesus is. Notice another thing. Notice the sufficiency of God in this. Not just that we're passive. He grants that to us. We didn't like work up the nerve to say, God, give us these things because we know what's best. No, he, in his power, gave us all things. But notice there, it doesn't say that he gave us some things pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us all things, and this should free you. Listen, this means that you do not need psychological insights for the good life. You do not need what anything outside of the truth of the gospel might tell you you need to have life and godliness. This means you don't need a seminary degree to live a fruitful life following Jesus. You only need what God has given you in his word to grow. Is that freeing for us? Like, there's not extra books you need. You, you need the Bible and he's given it to us in his power so that you might grow. So his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Trace the logic here. He has all power. He is aimed at us. And he is using it to give us all things for our lives and our walk with Jesus. So how does he do this and how do we tap into that power? Next part. Look. Divine power granted to us all things. How? Through 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence through. We see something here. That this divine power that leads us to life and godliness, divine power is the source, life and godliness is the goal, and we see that it actually comes through knowledge. This is an incredible thing for us to see. That this way to get more like Jesus and to be more effective is actually through the means that God has already given us by learning, by reading, by studying, by meditating. All of these things available to us through knowledge. Keep it in mind. It's knowledge of Him. That's the knowledge that leads to life, not just any knowledge, knowledge of Jesus. So how do we get this knowledge? Through His Word. Look at John 17, 3. I love this. This is Jesus talking. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice what Jesus just did. He just equated knowing God with eternal life. Do you see that? And this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What this means is that knowing God in this way is not simply intellectual assent, meaning learning things about God. It is knowing Him in a relationship. And in His power, it is aimed at us knowing Him in that way. Man, that should not bore us. This has incredible implications. Divine power for our life and godliness through knowing Jesus, which is our eternal life by the cross and resurrection, all of that aimed at helping us hate our sin and love and obey Jesus on mission. This is a huge, huge, huge deal. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we can't miss this qualifier either. Um, it says the knowledge of him. He is the one who called us. He is the one who brought us in to this knowledge, not our own doing, not our own earning. And if you will come in faith, you can see this calling too. He called us to his own glory, his own excellence, and his aim is to make you like Jesus. You're already like Jesus positionally because you're in him, but you're not yet like him fully. And in this in-between, he is making you more like Jesus through knowledge of him. So what else has happened because of this divine power? Just tracing right through. Look at this. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So in this knowledge and divine power, part of the all things that he has granted us include precious and very great promises. How many times have we heard that we should know and love the promises of God? Right? We know that. There's promises, one of my favorite fun facts, actually not sure if it's true, but one of the promises of God or commands of God is that we should not fear, and apparently it's said 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. Not sure, you can count that later. Um, but we've heard these things of like promises that we want to put on coffee mugs or things on our Instagrams, whatever. We know that these things are things that we should know, but these qualifiers of precious and very great should make you slow down and consider a few things. Three things. Number one, what is a promise of God? Let's define that, right? Two, how do we know that they apply to us? And three, and this is the one where you've got to check your heart tonight. Do I actually find them precious? 
So, what is a promise of God? In short, a promise of God is actually anything that he says because he doesn't lie. Right? So, like, if God doesn't lie, anything he says is you can bank on it as a promise. But this becomes particularly glorious when we see in his word, when he talks about who he is, who we are in him, what he has done for us, and what he will do for us. So there's four categories there of promises. I'll, I'll read them so you can jot these down. This becomes particularly beautiful when God says something about who he is, who we are in him, what he has done for us, and what he will do for us. So you can see how hearing things like this from a God who literally cannot lie would become precious or at least very great, right? Like, it's not just promises of God, and okay, there's things we can learn. This is a precious and very great thing. So second question. First one, what is a promise of God? We nailed that. Secondly, how do we know they apply to us? You want to write this verse down. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Every single promise of God finds its yes in Jesus. And you are in Christ if you have repented and put your trust in Him. So, because of Christ, all of these promises are aimed at His glory in your life and for your good. Jesus lived these promises and their realities perfectly and then died for us, rose again so that we might have His life. And because we have His life, every promise is now for you. Like you think about that. The Bible's a big book with a lot of really big, awesome promises. And now because you know Jesus, all of them at your disposal so that you might live an effective, fruitful life for him. So now is a part of the sermon where we have got to slow down and check our hearts. We, we've gone here. We've gone in high, amazing, beautiful, lofty ideas about who God is and his promises. And now it's the tables have turned. You need to ask yourself, do you find them precious? This is a question that I can't really break down any other way for you. Um, we all know the idea behind something being precious, that you can't leave it behind. You are always thinking about how happy you are that you have it. Something truly precious. And this is the part of the sermon that is absolutely humiliating for me. Um, I feel like there are very few things in my spiritual life that I find precious for very long. Um, I can get really excited about a ministry idea or a new book or et cetera, et cetera, some gospel truth that I'm all about, but then I just find myself usually moving on to the next thing, and I know that it's something very broken and wrong in my heart, and no amount of willpower can make me work my way up to finding something precious. You realize that? Like, you, don't, you can't make yourself think something precious. It's either precious to you or it's not. Finding the things of God as precious is a spiritual act. Only God can do this. And if God must do it, then we must pray for it to happen. Um, prayer is one of the ways that promises of God come alive in us. We must pray promises back to God and beg Him to change our hearts to see them as precious and empower us to act like they are true. 
The sin of gospel boredom could have a stronghold on your soul. And I am praying somehow, I know it can't be me to manipulate this or get you all excited about something, but the descriptions of precious and very great should convict you deeply as you consider the promises of God are precious and very great things that you would describe the things of God in your life. It's humiliating for me. I hope you don't think that I put on a Superman spiritual cape when I come up here and like I spent all week just meditating on the promises of God in a way that they were precious and very great. Most of the time, absolute failure. But I know that only God can do this. And I know that it has to be that way or we're not going to live them out. Do, Do you get that? Can we at least agree? Can we agree that sometimes these promises of God are like maybe not really very great, but they're kind of good and not really precious or just like a good idea? You love them. Keep going. Here's what these promises of God do. See, so, so that through them, that's the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, Through these promises, these precious and very great promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, don't read this and think you're becoming part of God, okay? This partaking is the life and godliness that this verse has already been talking about. And it's through believing them in knowledge that only comes from a relationship with Jesus. The necessary result of becoming a partaker of divine nature that starts with the power of God, through the knowledge of God, through the promises of God as we believe them, is that you have escaped, escaped sinful desire. Notice, these promises are how we escape the world's corruption, corruption that is in the world because of our sin. So what does that mean? That means that the two aims of these promises are to help us live out the life and godliness purchased for us by Jesus while combating our desires for sin and corruption. That's the point. We battle our sinful desires. Some of you limped in here with a absolute, like, being enslaved to some sin. And it's because, the core of it is because you like it. You want it. You desire it. That sin is very great and precious to you. That's why you keep doing it. But the promises of God are aimed at combating that in us to defeat that desire with a more very great and a more precious desire. And as we believe them and as we act on them, we are acting in the faith-filled life that Jesus purchased for us and that our Father wants for us. So, You had to summarize all that before we close. I want to pause here to show us how the entirety of this verse should change the way that you walk with Jesus. Four four things about promises. Remembering that they find their yes in Christ. Um, When you're considering a promise of God, number one, confess and understand your neediness for that promise. Confess and understand. Why? Because he grants them to you. You need him. He doesn't need you. Okay? He loves you. He wants you. He wants to give. He doesn't need you. You need him. Confess that. Number two, praise the Lord for the preciousness of them. Even when you don't feel like it, beg him to make you feel like it. Like, please see it. God is not after us just getting up every morning and agreeing that he exists. So power in that. Like, Lord, you are real. 
He knows that. A heart becomes changed when you start to see these things as precious. You realize a lot of people that believe in God that live their whole life sinning. They believe that he's real. James 3, demons believe that he's real. Demons don't find the promises of God precious. They find them terrifying. You, you want to be effective? You've got to understand your neediness, but you have to beg God for you to see them as precious. And it's not going to come from you. Only him. That's why you have to pray. Number three, act in obedience to these realities of the promise. This is the partaking of divine nature. Confess your neediness, beg him to make it precious, and then act like it's true. So much of my life, I I have yet to name this sin of mine, because I haven't seen anybody else that struggles with it. Maybe tonight I'll find some friends. Um, I do this thing where like, if one thing in my day goes wrong spiritually, I kind of just chalk up the whole day as a mess and then just try to start over the next day. Do your head nods. Sweet. Um, This really comes out a lot in conversations with my wife. Let's say that I'm a jerk one day. Then one thing that I like to say is, hey, let's just start over. And she'll always say, I don't want to start over. We've been married for, you know, almost three years. It's kind of a little banter. It's cute. And, um, but, but, it, but it reveals something in me in that I just feel like I just need to continually start over and like, man, I messed this all up and, and now I'm just here. And what, what happens is, is I just stop acting in obedience. It's like because I forget to love Jesus in the morning, I have like a, an excuse to just kind of not care the rest of the day. And that only happens if you are convinced that somehow you are not supposed to still act in obedience, believing the realities of these promises. You have to get there. Listen, if we're honest, I think all of us would say our lives are not as fruitful and as effective as they want to be. Here's how. Find the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus. Find them precious. Your life will be changed. Sin will lose its grip on you. you will, the gospel will fly out of your mouth to non-believers because you can't help but talk about what you find precious. Four, confess and repent from the ways that you have let your sinful desire seem more precious than the promises of God. It is really eye-opening to understand that because you sin because you want to. That's why you sin. You sin because you want to. That's what desire means, want to. But if you can combat that simple desire with a more powerful desire, oh man. Like, imagine a room this size of people all walking out here saying that everything the Bible says is true, and not only that, we believe they are precious and we're going to bank our whole lives on it. No stopping. No stopping a group like that. Um, I'm going to close in a way, I know this is the second time I've said we're going to close, but this is the actual close. Um, I'm actually going to use these four categories of promises and these things, and I want to show you what this can look like with four different promises, okay? And then we're going to sing and we're going to fellowship, but I want you to see this. Because I, I want you to not leave with just a bunch of head knowledge. I want you to leave with like, okay, so what? What do I do tomorrow morning, right? How do we live? Like, this sounds amazing, a, a fruitful life, a godly life. I want that. How, how does it happen? So I want to help you apply this in your own personal life. Um, And we're going to use these promises in particular to attack guilt and shame in our lives. I think this is kind of where all of us land in some way, right? Like at the end of the day, you drive sin down, how it's affecting us, usually guilt, usually shame, right? So here's a promise about who God is. Remember the first category. This is about who he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, that's talking about Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love 
and faithfulness. Um, the verse goes on to say, I don't think I have it up there, but he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So, we must first, here's how you read that in your Bible plan. Here's a promise. God's saying this is how he is. We must first realize that Jesus is the substance of this promise about who God is. Abounding in love and will not clear the guilty on your own, you're the one not cleared. But Jesus took our guilt so your sin really was punished and now only God's love is what you know. We are needy and God has given us this promise. We can guarantee that these things are true for us. We are unable to produce this kind of love on our own. So we pray, we would say, Lord, please let me now see these big scale promises with these tiny, small, faithless eyes. Give me faith to see these big promises. And in my guilt and shame, I will act in faith to keep praying, stay in ministry because these promises are true. And Lord, forgive me for letting my view of my own sin make you a small God. I cannot out steadfast love that lasts for thousands. A promise about who we are in Jesus is found in 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Uh, I have a, like a journal that I do my quiet time with in the mornings and two resources that I keep in the back is this list of promises. Um, I have one packet that's who I am in Christ and another one that says who I am to Christ. And it's this guy, so thankful for him doing this, went through the entire New Testament and wrote out every one of those promises. So I have this a packet. You want that, find me afterwards. I'll make sure that you get a PDF of that. Um, so this is one of those in particular of who I am in him. So we would pray, we believe Christ is the one who purifies my soul because he is the truth. I would confess that I need purified. I can't obey my way on my own into purity. Lord, let me not see this as a little thing. It took the slaughtering of your son to buy my purity. And Lord, let me act like a pure man. I truly get to have an actual pure conscience if I am repenting in the grace that was brought for me. And it will lead me to love my brothers and sisters. Lord, forgive me from the times of acting like I am not pure in the way that I will not go to you in prayer or I will not confess, or I will not stay in ministry. You see how this promise could give you life. Have you ever wanted to hide from God and His people because you think you're not pure? But if you found this promise is precious and very great, you live a life of freedom. Two more. Here's a promise about what He has done. Hebrews 10.10 And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice. Um, for me, sometimes I feel like I have to do these little religious sacrifice to ease the weight of sin or my guilty conscience. Um, for people like that, if you think you kind of have to like, mentally get everything right so that God will still love you, this promise is for you. You need to see this as precious, that we confess that we can't make this sacrifice on our own, that we need to see this once-for-allness as precious. And I need to stop, start once again acting in obedience to this. Stop trying to do religious things to please God for my acceptance and start obeying Him because I have been accepted. I need to repent of all my sinful desires to want to justify myself. And lastly, Ben, you can come on back up. Here's a, this is a promise about uh, what He will do. Philippians 1.6 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, as you're thinking of these promises, Jesus saved me and he will not stop it. He will stop at nothing to make me holy and happy forever with him. I confess that I need this promise because I didn't begin my salvation and I can't keep myself in the faith. Lord, help me see this as precious. Help me to act in obedience toward Christ, working hard to know him better so that I might be more confident in his work in me. And help me to repent of wallowing in my guilt and shame. The feelings of where I think I'm not good enough or that God has not made me pure. Because this precious promise says that he is still working. So, if I leave you with this, all of these, I know it's so much and there's so many promises. How do we begin? I think I would just say this. Never forget the gospel. You need to press in deeper to the promises of God. You need to press in to see the beauty of God in them. You need to press in to live in and enjoy the will of God. And remember that every promise is yours and yes in Jesus. So let's stand and celebrate the fact that all of these promises are ours because of what he has done.